Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. I am recording this intro up at my family cabin. I had a great 4th of July, a wonderful 4th of July weekend. I hope you guys did something fun. It's been really relaxing, really nice up here. It's like the perfect weather, taking a lot of long walks outside and just soaking up the nature, which is exactly what I needed to recharge, especially because July is a big month. We have the wellness realness retreat happening in just a few weeks and I'm getting everything all ready for that. And then also I am running my group coaching program, the Paleo Women Lifestyle Program for the last time ever starting this month. The Paleo Woman Lifestyle Program is my online course all about everything you need to know to optimize your health as a woman, and I run it a few times a year as a group coaching program, and when I run it as a group coaching program, I am involved. I pace you out over five weeks to go through the five modules. You have access to me for any questions and support. You're in our private Facebook group with the other women in the program. And you also have access to me in live video coaching calls. They are all recorded in case you can't make the time. And you also can watch all of the old live video coaching calls. So you have hundreds of hours of content to work through. We cover pretty much every topic under the sun related to health, including obviously nutrition and macronutrients, balancing your plate, cooking and grocery shopping, and exercise and sleep hacks and sunlight and balancing your hormones and gut health, digestion, all of the most common mistakes women make when it comes to their health and how to avoid them and every other misconception out there. There are so many health myths, and I'm so passionate about this program because there's just so much health information out there that is really targeted towards men and can work for men's bodies, has been tested on men's bodies, and that doesn't always apply to the female body. We are changing every day. Our hormones are changing throughout the week, throughout the month, and our hormones definitely change a lot throughout our lives, and so it's really important to take that into consideration because I see this over and over again with clients and just testimonials, people reaching out to me via email or on the internet in general saying, you know, I tried exactly what my boyfriend did or my husband did and he lost 15 pounds and I gained 10. And I say, that's because you are not a man. I really believe in a holistic approach to health and there are so many nuances to women's health and we cover 
all of this in my program. So if you are a woman looking to optimize her health and wellness, no matter where you are in your health journey, we have women in there who are brand new to healthy living. And then we have women in there who have been doing this for years and they love geeking out and getting into the nitty gritty of the sciencey side of things. There is a place for everybody. It's an amazing community of women. You'll meet your lifelong friends in there, and it's a tight-knit community. I get to know everybody in there, so I really recommend taking advantage of this opportunity if you have been wanting to, if you are interested in working with somebody for your health, but you don't really know where to start. I think everybody should start with all the information in this course. This covers everything that you're going to have to do no matter who you work with. Honestly, if you start to work with an FMD or another NTP or nutritionist or Whatever type of practitioner you're working with, everything I cover here is all the baseline information that they would cover with you in your first, I mean, I want to say few appointments, but more than your first few appointments because there's so much information. So you'd have to do all this anyways, but this is a much more cost-effective option and you have the group support and you get to know other people in here. So I just think you will love it. Actually, I know you will love it. If you want to read more about the program and what's included, including, you know, the video and audio lectures from me, the downloadable PDFs, and all the different aspects of our community, you can learn more at bit.ly slash paleowomenlifestyle. And enrollment is going to open up on July 15th. That's a Monday. And the course will officially start on Monday, July 22nd. Limited spaces are available. And that first day, July 15th, one enrollment opens. It's going to be $200 off the normal price. After that day, any spots left will be the regular price. So I recommend enrolling that first day. If you already know you want to secure your spot, go ahead and email me at Christina at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. I'm opening up a few limited spaces on the wait list. I started doing this last round because a lot of women got stressed out that they didn't make the cutoff the first day. So it's a way to secure your spot especially this time because it's the last time I'm running this as a group program and after this it will be DIY self-study and I won't be in there moderating the Facebook group or doing the live video coaching calls and that's really kind of what what makes it so awesome we have incredible conversations and we get to see each other and chat with each other so I highly recommend taking advantage of this opportunity if you are ready to change your life so if you want to get on that wait list, just email me at christina at christinaricewellness.com. And again, all information can be found at bit.ly slash paleowomenlifestyle. In that program, we definitely talk a lot about gut health and also, you know, everyday supplements that might benefit people. And one of my favorite recommendations is Just Thrive Probiotic and Antioxidant, which I'm sure many of you have heard me rave about many times. Gut health is truly the key to everything with over 80% of our immune system found in the gut and 90% of our serotonin is produced in the gut. So our gut health really impacts pretty much every part of our health. Of course, our immune system, it's linked to autoimmunity, leaky gut. It is also linked to our mood, our mental health, as well as our ability to lose weight, weight loss, our athletic performance and ability to recover and build muscle our skin health, and of course, our digestion, which is what most people think about when they think of probiotics. They think digestion, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. 
The reason I love Just Thrive so much is because it has 100% survivability into your intestines. So a lot of probiotics out there on the market actually can't even survive your harsh stomach environment. So they're actually not even technically a true probiotic because to be a true probiotic, the strains have to arrive alive in the intestines. Otherwise, you're just ingesting dead bacteria and that's not really helping you. This is why there's no refrigeration needed. Just Thrive strains are so stable that they don't have to be refrigerated. Probiotics that do need to be refrigerated are very sensitive. They're so sensitive that they can't even survive room temperature on a shelf. So what do you think is going to happen when you swallow them and your body's 98.6 degrees and they've got to make it through your stomach acid? I mean, the chances of it arriving alive into your intestines is pretty slim. Also, studies have shown that a frightening amount of probiotics out there on the market do not meet label claims and do not do what they say they do. Most of them do not arrive into the intestines alive and many of them don't even have the strains they say they have. Just Thrive helps to recondition your digestion and also actually helps you to produce nutrients. The way this works is that the bacillus endospores are like little gut police that are going to arrive alive into your intestines and read your microbiome and they have the ability to help eliminate pathogens and toxins there while also producing different compounds and nutrients that will help to grow your good bacteria. And in addition to being a really powerful probiotic, one of their bacillus strains actually produces the recommended daily allowance levels of certain really powerful antioxidants, including alpha and beta carotene and astaxanthin, zeaxanthin. So that's awesome. And the bacillus indicus strains also produce vitamin K2, methylated B vitamins, and a full array of digestive enzymes. So you are basically your own nutrient factory. One of the other really common misconceptions about probiotics is that the CFUs matters, and really it's not about how many probiotic cells are in the product, it's about how many effective cells get to the intestines alive. And studies have actually shown that the strains in Just Thrive create a 30% favorable shift in the microbiome by using just 1 billion CFUs per day. That's a 30 trillion organism change by just 1 billion spores. This is why it's really important to focus on quality, not quantity. No published studies have showed that a higher CFU count is better. In terms of direct health benefits, the strains in Just Thrive are amazing for helping to modulate the immune system. The spores help to tutor your immune system to detect and attack pathogens and toxins in the body, and it will help to upregulate your T regulatory system, which will suppress any unfavorable immune responses like allergies and food sensitivities. Again, with 80% of the immune system in the gut, it's really important to have a high quality probiotic like Just Thrive to maintain your overall health. And then, of course, we have to talk about leaky gut. It's been estimated that over 65% of Americans have a leaky gut, although I would suspect a much higher number of people have <laughs> leaky gut in today's modern world. And leaky gut is usually the root cause of most major chronic illnesses in the Western world, including things like diabetes, heart disease, autoimmune disease, cancer, dementia, and more. 
just thrive. Probiotics have been shown in human clinical trials to actually help heal leaky gut in just 30 days. And in that study, the participants didn't even change any diet or lifestyle factors. They were just taking this probiotic. So it's very powerful. This is the probiotic I recommend to everybody. And I would rather you take no probiotic than take one of the crappy ones at the store. Just have to be honest. Those can actually do you more harm than good. So whatever your health goals are, whether that be improving your digestion, improving your mood if you struggle with depression, anxiety, if you are looking to lose weight, if you are an athlete and you're looking to build muscle and have better recovery, if you want to get rid of your joint pain, if you want to eliminate your allergies, it's really important to get this high quality probiotic. So make sure you check out Just Thrive because people tell me that before this they thought probiotics didn't do anything and then they switched over to Just Thrive and their lives changed. So if you're interested in trying it out, just go to bit.ly slash thrive probiotic CRW and you can use my discount code Christina15 for 15% off. Again, that's bit.ly slash thrive probiotic CRW and my code Christina15. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-1-5 will get you 15% off. Speaking of gut health and getting to the root of chronic disease, let's chat about today's guest. I am so pumped for you guys to hear today's episode with Dr. Paul Saladino. If you guys are not familiar with him and then you are going to love this episode. He is probably one of the smartest people you'll ever come across ever. He's so intelligent. I he says he doesn't have a photographic memory, but we'll see. He is a certified functional medicine practitioner and he just completed his residency in psychiatry at the University of Washington. His research focus is on nutritional biochemistry and chronic disease and he has made some waves in this space for his approach to the carnivore diet. He is writing a book all about the carnivore diet and he follows a carnivore diet himself after having tried different types of nutritional approaches over the years. But, you know, he just really focuses on trying to get to the root of chronic disease. And he believes that carnivore is the way to go. He believes this is the way that humans should eat. You guys know I am honestly all about the carnivore diet. I think it's awesome. I don't follow it myself. I've done I've done it for a little bit and I cycle it in here and there. I don't follow it long term, but I am I'm very much here for it. And I was really excited to have Dr. Saladino on because he has a scientific answer for literally every objection anyone could make about the carnivore diet and I think he has the most convincing argument by far and I also love his approach to it. He takes a nose to tail carnivore approach, which I 100% agree with, stand behind. So I was really excited to just pick his brain and kind of ask him some questions that arise every so often and just sort of play devil's advocate. And he's so great. He, you know, puts up with all my shenanigans. You know me. But I, I love this episode. He really gets into the science behind the carnivore diet, and I know you will learn 
a lot from this. You might want to take some notes and make sure you check him out. He's on Instagram at Paul Saladino MD, and he also is at paulsaladinomd.com. And if you love to nerd out the way I do, then make sure you check out his podcast. You can find it on iTunes. It's called Fundamental Health. Okay, so if you're ready to get into the meat, haha, pun intended, let's just hop right into this interview with Dr. Paul Saladino. I am a classically trained physician, which means I'm an MD, which means I've spent way too much time in school and... I am uh, completing my residency at the University of Washington in psychiatry. In fact, I'm doing, I'm going to complete it this week. So by the time this comes out, I probably will have completed my residency in psychiatry at the University of Washington. Went to medical school at the University of Arizona, which is kind of known for integrative medicine and trained with people like Andrew Weil and the Center for Integrative Medicine there and have always been interested in the roots of chronic disease. I was a PA before I went to medical school and worked in cardiology and got kind of fed up with that because it was pretty apparent quickly that the mainstream medical paradigm is focused on symptom treatment without getting to the root cause of illnesses. And we like to sling medications and it's a lot of well-intentioned, intelligent physicians who are trained in a very bad paradigm. And so we usually throw medications at people and try and name diseases and try and figure out what pill we have for that thing that is bothering you and that's it. And it's pretty rare in Western medicine that we actually try and get to the root cause. So went back to medical school after I'd been working for four years as a physician assistant and have been kind of on this obsessive, passionate journey since then for the last eight years trying to figure out what the heck is causing chronic disease because something is causing chronic disease. And uh, Western medicine surely isn't going to find out what it is because Western medicine doesn't like to ask that question. So So what is causing chronic disease? So I think that a couple of things are causing chronic disease, and I think that the biggest thing that's causing chronic disease is genetic and environmental discordance. So this is the idea that we have genetics, and we are in an environment, and when they are discordant, we get the appearance of chronic disease. And, you know, in a more granular, less big-picture perspective, I would say that chronic disease is caused by inflammation. And that's another sort of big word that very few people define. But when we look at inflammation, we're looking at immune activation, which is inappropriate, which is almost a synonym for autoimmunity when you think about it. So I would argue that chronic disease is essentially mostly caused by inflammation, inappropriate inflammation, and you could even call it chronic inflammation, which is synonymous most of the time with autoimmunity. So this is inappropriate activation of the immune system in the human body. What got you interested in all this to begin with? You know, when you're in medicine, you have this kind of ego thing where you think, man, it's really hard when somebody comes to see you and you can't help them. (laughs) And if that happens enough, you think, oh, dang, I wish I could help this person. You know, I want to really understand what's helping this person. And so I think it grew out of my disdain for taking my car to the mechanic Mm -hmm. when I was young. It's just I hated the feeling of taking my car to the mechanic and not knowing what the mechanic was doing with my car and not knowing how to fix it. I thought, I want to know how to fix my car myself. 
so I went into medicine and as I was in medicine, I thought, okay, this is cool, but I still want to know how to fix the car. I still want to know how to fix humans. I think of myself as a human mechanic and you got to know how to put it all together and take it all apart. And so it's just this idea that you can't just put pinstripes on a car and make it look fancy unless you correct what's wrong with the timing belt. You got to correct what's at the root of the problem with your car. Mechanics know that. They know that if you just just put a Band-Aid on something when it comes to Western medicine, we forget that you can't just put a Band-Aid on something. You can't just treat the symptoms because it's going to break down somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So right now you are the carnivore guy. So what brought you to carnivore? So carnivore was this progression about a year ago from thinking about food a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So as I was in medical school and even at the end of my career as a PA and as I was doing residency, as I've been doing residency for the last four years, I decided that what I came to realize was that probably the biggest thing that was causing problems, that was causing chronic inflammation was food. And then the question becomes, which food are humans meant to eat? And are different humans meant to eat different foods? And so that question around how humans should eat kind of goes back to the original idea that I mentioned, this discordance between genetics and environment. And this really interesting question about what is written in our genetics? How are we supposed to eat? How are humans programmed to eat? You know, what is written in our user manual? Going back to the car metaphor, it's like you pop the glove compartment open, there's a user manual that says put this kind of fuel And if the check engine light comes on, do these things. We don't have that as humans. We're just kind of thrust upon the earth and we get breast milk, hopefully, if we're lucky. And then after that, our parents start feeding us food. And then when we become semi-conscious as teenagers, we eat all the candy and junk food we can for the rest of our lives. And then sometime in middle age or, you know, early adulthood, we think, man, maybe I want to eat healthy. But what does that even mean? How am I supposed to eat in order to make this machine that we're a part of, that, that, that we inhabit, function as well as possible. We don't even know what type of fuel we're supposed to put in the car when we roll up to the gas station. And so I've been thinking about food for so long and really trying to understand patterns of food and how food interacts with human genetics, how food interacts with human physiology to create the best experience for us in life. And I think that's a very, very powerful lever. I think that most people listening to this, and maybe you would agree, realize that food is a huge determinant into how they feel every day, day in and day out, how they sleep, their mood, mental clarity, libido, energy, you know, all these things, body composition. Food is a huge, huge lever to this question of like, what the heck are humans supposed to eat? It's fascinating to me. And I think it's probably the most fascinating question for me. And so I tried a different bunch of different diets for myself and I didn't really ever feel bad But many, many years ago, I was a vegan. So I had a time when I was a raw vegan for seven months, about 14 years ago. It was an interesting time. I lost 25 pounds of muscle and eventually started feeling really fatigued and decided, I don't think that's the right way to do it. When I thought about the evolutionary sort of origins of where humans have come from, I thought, well, we probably were eating animals. But I didn't go carnivore 14 years ago. I sort of went paleo. So about the last 12 years, I've been organic paleo and really strict about it and tried things around autoimmune paleo and ketogenic diets and you know low histamine and all the variations of paleo type diets thinking oh maybe this will be the way to do it and you know I still always had some nagging issues whether it was sleep or 
little bit of mood stuff and this eczema that wouldn't go away. And the eczema was probably the biggest thing, you know, this kind of itchy skin rash that when I was in medical school, I did a lot of jujitsu and they would get infected because I would get eczema on my knees from doing, you know, grappling with people on the mats. And every once in a while, I'd be like, man, I just want to get rid of this eczema. I, I really had this sense, like I am immunologically not quiet there's no quiescent time for my immune system because this eczema is still here and i didn't even really i think appreciate you know how activated my immune system might have been so as i went on in medical school and then in the residency i began to realize that a lot of conditions were autoimmune a lot of conditions were inflammatory and man what is triggering autoimmunity and you think well it's leaky gut what's triggering leaky gut it's probably food antigens and i started cutting more and more things out of my diet and they Eventually, when I heard Jordan Peterson and Michaela talk about, you know, her issues, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and then Jordan's improvement with a carnivore diet, I thought, that is interesting. Although, my first reaction is that is crazy because I was so indoctrinated and conditioned to believe that plants were valuable. I was kind of steeped in functional medicine, which says, oh, plant polyphenols are amazing. And then when I thought about it more, I just started getting pulled into this rabbit hole, and it's just been a journey for the last year. So I began carnivore, I began looking into it, I began thinking about a carnivore diet, and I can clarify what I think of as a good carnivore diet. It's a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, not just a, a ribeye diet. I began thinking about it from the perspective of, I wonder if, what if plants are causing some of this autoimmunity? What if plants are triggering inflammation? What if plants have toxins and we don't really need them? And so that was the beginning of the exploration about a year ago, and since then it's just been a real fun roller coaster ride in this rabbit hole and I've really come to appreciate the fact that holy shit you know we don't need plants we don't need plants for vitamins or minerals we don't need plants for nutrients and then plants are really just not happy with us plants don't want to get eaten plants don't play well with humans and they're full of toxins so why would we eat them and there are lots of answers to that question but you know the thing that I've come to believe as a thesis for me is that animal foods provide all of the nutrients that humans need in the most bioavailable forms because they're, they're, they're very similar to humans in terms of their biochemistry, much more similar to the biochemistry of a human than a plant is. So they provide all these nutrients in the right bioavailable forms without any of the plant anti-nutrients. It sounds like an amazing diet. The only problem is that we've been told our whole lives and 99.9% .9 of the world and all the nutritionists and everyone who thinks about nutrition is enamored with the idea of eating plants and tons of fiber. And so now I'm a Cape Crusader to uh, disabuse people of that 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 notion. Okay, let's let's dive into this. Um, so I want you to explain more about your approach with the nose to tail carnivore diet. So if people are interested in carnivore diets or they've heard of carnivore diets, a lot of times carnivore diets get billed as meat and water, or meat and butter and water, and that doesn't make any sense to me because our ancestors never have done that. Indigenous peoples never do that when they eat animals. Other carnivores on the face of the earth don't do that. Nobody ever eats just the muscle meat. In fact, traditional cultures would oftentimes kind of shun the muscle meat and just focus on the organ meat and the fat. And I think that those kind of diets are not nutritionally complete when you actually look at the nutrition of an animal-based diet. So there's about there's some nutrients present in the muscles of animals, but the whole complement of nutrients that a human needs are present when you eat nose to tail, which means eating organ meat and eating connective tissue and eating fat. And these are concepts that are very foreign to westernized humans. This is a real first world problem type of thing. 
we just want to eat ribeyes and tenderloins. And I hate to break it to people, but like that's only one part of the puzzle. And nobody ever thinks about eating liver or heart or kidney or heaven forbid spleen or pancreas. Like people are just like throwing up in their mouths. Those are not foreign concepts to people in other countries. Those are not foreign concepts to indigenous peoples. But in the Westernized world, we have become too clean or too separated from the fact that the whole animal has nutrient value. So I'll give an example to illustrate this. I was just looking up some stuff today about molybdenum. There are two minerals that are particularly fascinating to me, molybdenum and copper. And um, if you look at where those minerals are found, they're not found in the muscle meat of animals. They're found in the liver and the kidneys of animals. And there are multiple examples. There are multiple examples of this when we look at how nutrients are distributed throughout the human body. We have different biochemistry in a muscle than we do in the liver or than we do in the kidney or than we do in the heart. And so to just eat the muscle meat is to really only get a portion. It's an important portion, but it's a very small portion of the nutrients that are, you know, in an animal. But if you need to get molybdenum, and all humans need, do need molybdenum to make the enzyme, you know, sulfate oxidase or SUOX work, and all humans need copper to make the enzyme superoxide dismutase work, you need to get those things from liver. You can't just get that from muscle meat. So I have a lot of concerns that people who are just eating muscle meat are going to get imbalances. They're going to get too much zinc. Muscle meat is a great source of zinc, but they're not going to get enough copper, and they're not going to get enough molybdenum, and they're going to get nutrient deficiencies. And in fact, if you look at that, eating a ton of muscle meat with a lot of zinc can actually give you a copper deficiency. So just to mirror the way that every other carnivorous animal on the planet does it, to mirror the way our ancestors have always done it, you have to eat nose and tail. You have to eat as much of the animal as possible and get a sense of where the nutrients are coming from. We don't know everything about human nutrition, but we have a pretty good sense of the minerals and vitamins and nutrients that we need. And so you can say like, well, where am I getting my calcium from? Well, you better eat eggshells or bones or some people tolerate certain types of dairy. I'm not a huge fan of dairy, but we have to know where we're getting calcium. We have to know where we're getting magnesium. We have to know where we're getting molybdenum. We have to know where we're getting manganese. We have to know where we're getting copper and zinc. And when you think about that, eating the whole animal makes total sense and you get all of it. And that's what's kind of crazy is maybe it's not that crazy. If you eat an animal, you eat whole animal. And that makes sense because it's, it has biochemistry and physiology that it mirrors us very, very closely. It looks just like a human. 99.99% the same. Okay, I have a question for you. So would you rather, what do you think is the better option? Eating a carnivore diet that's not nose to tail um, or eating a paleo diet that includes organ meats? <laughs> I never understand these would you rather questions. <laughs> like, um, well, because I, I, I'm just trying to be realistic with people listening. That's why. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, I think that the first thing, it depends on the individual. Right. So it depends on the individual. And I would argue that if somebody is really sick and has autoimmune issues and they're really trying to correct autoimmunity or inflammation, then maybe a, a meat based carnivore diet is the way to start. Mm -hmm. Okay. And maybe they'll have improvement in their autoimmunity just by eating meat and eggs. But long term, they're going to want to add a few more things to make sure it's nutritionally valuable or nutritionally complete. And that's fine. Maybe they'll see so much value that they'll be open to eating liver and they weren't in the first place. I think that a paleo diet with organs sounds good if people are in a good place and they're not having issues with autoimmunity or inflammation. That's going to be a more nutritionally replete diet, but that's also going to be a diet that has more lectins. 
and more things that can trigger immunologic activation. It's going to have more anti-nutrients than a meat-based carnivorous diet. So I would say it depends on the individual. So that's how I usually answer those would you rather questions as I say. It depends. Can't box, can't box me into a corner. Can't paint me in a corner. <laughs> we just got started. We just got started. Um, too sly. <laughs> okay, well, well, just wait for it. Just wait for it. I'm going to come at you. But okay, so you, to be clear, you don't think everybody should be on a carnivore diet? I don't think people should be on a carnivore diet unless they want to kick a lot of ass and feel really good. Like, is there anyone why. who you, is there anyone who would not recommend it to? No. What about like um, if they have the APOE4 gene? No. No, I think even in that condition, it's totally safe. APOE4 is widely misunderstood, and the studies are widely sort of looked at at a very surface level. That goes back to discussions around lipids and risk. I did a podcast on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD with Dave Feldman, and we talked all about lipids and cholesterol, so I don't even worry about a carnivore diet with people with APOE4. There are actually studies of people who have APOE4 polymorphisms, and these are indigenous people who have longevity, who have protection from infections. So in certain situations, APOE4 can be protective. And um, indigenous peoples, I think, believe that this population of indigenous people were eating quite a bit of meat. They were not carnivore, because very few indigenous peoples are still carnivore, because of the way that lands are changing and they can't hunt as much as we did in the past. But no, I don't worry about APOE4. Okay. So there's What's no one. I No, I, I'm actually just genuinely, I'm just wondering. So what happened to me was I did carnivore. I felt really great at the beginning. Um, and then end of second week, I just started feeling like super kind of toxic in my head and like I was going to pass out. It was very odd. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I kind of just crashed and burned. And then I, like, got things tested and had suddenly had ammonia toxicity and my CBS gene was acting up, I suppose. And then I had, once I addressed that, now I could go back on carnivore with no issues. Um, have you ever run across anything like that? Well, I mean, I'd have to know all of your blood work. People send me stuff like this all the time on Instagram. And I'm like, well, show me your data, you know? Mm -hmm. When the first thing I think of when somebody does carnivore and doesn't feel good two weeks in is inadequate salt. You know, oh, if, that's not the issue. Okay. <laughs> because if people, but I'll just add that if mm -hmm. people are not eating enough salt, they're going to have cortisol spike. And that's mm -hmm. a big deal. And when cortisol spikes, it's going to affect sex hormones. It's going to affect all kinds of things. So your body will become insulin resistant if you don't use enough salt. And there are other electrolyte things which can happen in the beginning, and there are fluid shifts. So there's probably a need for magnesium. Again, if we're not eating enough sodium, we're going to get potassium deficient because of the sodium-potassium exchanger in the kidney. And you said you had a CBS polymorphism. So how did you clean up your CBS gene? Getting enough B6, or what was the issue with your cystothionine beta synthase gene? Um, I did this whole protocol with like um, molybdenum and root and B6 and a few other a few other things. And after I did that for about three or four months, I was fine. Mm -hmm. But it was like I'm, I was reacting to meat. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I'd have to see. I mean, sulfur sensitivity is a possibility. And as we talked about, I think sulfur sensitivity is often connected with molybdenum deficiency, mm -hmm. right? And I think can, people can get molybdenum deficient because many soils are molybdenum deficient. But well, the other question is, how are you doing carnivore? 
and often people are not doing enough organ meats and other little nuances. They're not doing full nose to tail. So I'll throw it back to you there. Were you? I definitely you doing was. Tail? I was doing eating a lot of organ meats for sure. I did a lot of raw meat, um, but yeah. I mean, I don't eat spleen or pancreas, but I ate um, like liver and heart and kidney. Good. And good. How much liver were you eating? How would I quantify that? Like per day? I mean, I had some every day. Yeah. yeah. And bone broth and collagen. So Okay. That's pretty good. I wonder if there was a molybdenum deficiency or something. I mean, molybdenum would be mm-hmm. a little different than CBS, but yeah. But it, it sounds like... a roll. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. It sounds like once you got some nutrients and you were able to process that stuff better, is that correct? Mm-hmm. So now you feel like a million bucks on a nose-to-tail carnivore diet? No, no, I don't. But if I wanted to, I could. <laughs> like, I <laughs> could do it. Not, I could do it without passing out. I'm not doing it. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm not doing it. I I could if I wanted to. Yeah. I think. Because you felt better on it once you got that stuff kind of figured out. Yeah, I felt better on it. Um, but I don't know that I felt better on it than I do off of it. Hmm. I'm not sure yet. We'll see. You might convince me. We'll see. Okay. okay. Maybe you can speak to, okay, well, do you, um, I know something that like Chris Kreiser, for instance, argues a lot is with like thyroid, um, that any cultures that were carnivorous primarily ate thyroid gland. Do you eat thyroid gland? You can, if you want to, I don't think you need to. What we see with thyroid on ketogenic diets is that TSH usually stays the same or improves a little bit. Uh, usually you see antithyroid peroxidase and antithyroglobulin antibodies decline. So people with autoimmune issues often get better when they remove the, um, the offending, I would say, immunologically triggering plants. One thing that you do sometimes see is the free T3 and the serum go down a little bit, but the TSH doesn't rise. And the basal metabolic rate doesn't seem to change. So people get kind of up in arms and they say, oh, the serum T3 went down, to which I reply, yeah, the TSH didn't change and clearly they're not gaining weight, so the basal metabolic rate didn't change. There's some interesting literature that at the tissue level, T3 sensitivity probably changes on ketogenic diets and carnivore would be included in that. So I think that there's no need to eat thyroid. Um, You could if you wanted to, Mm -hmm. but... The thyroid will adjust, and I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Okay, yeah, I think it's interesting thinking about how it seems like um, some of our nutrient needs do shift. Like, what do you think about vitamin C? Vitamin C is quite a fascinating thing. I'm not sure the vitamin C requirement shifts a whole lot, although there is this thing called the glucose ascorbate antagonism theory, and it's been debated, and it's this idea that perhaps if you're not eating carbohydrates or you don't have a high blood glucose or you're not spiking your blood glucose that you can absorb or you know use more vitamin C in your cells. Um, I think that vitamin C is a widely misunderstood substance and Linus Pauling had it way wrong. If you look at vitamin C studies that were done in the 1930s and 1940s with conscientious objectors, they actually gave those people scurvy and it took six to eight months of vitamin C deprivation is 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day. The RDA for vitamin C is 100 milligrams of vitamin C a day, but we don't really need that much, nor is there evidence that that much is beneficial in any way, shape, or form. 
at least in those original studies with vitamin C, they could see no clinical differences in people fed 10 or 70 milligrams of vitamin C. So if they were able to reverse the scurvy, then they found that people were as healthy as they were with excess vitamin C. The flip side is also compelling around vitamin C. If we overfeed vitamin C to people, I think it can become an oxidant, a pro-oxidant. Like any of these molecules that are used in oxidative reduction, oxidation reduction reactions in the human body, sometimes in various forms they can do the reverse of what we think they're doing. They can, instead of being an agent that um, is you know, an electron acceptor, they can become an electron donor. So they can become an oxidant instead of a reducing agent. Glutathione in our body functions like this. But vitamin C can become a pro-oxidant molecule at high doses. We see this in people with a condition called G6PD, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. If those people take high doses of vitamin C, they get hemolysis of their red blood cells because they lack the enzyme that allows them to regenerate NADPH, which is used to make glutathione in the red blood cells. So high doses of vitamin C do put oxidative stress on our body. So I think this idea that like megadosing vitamin C is a good thing is not supported by science at all. And I think that what we are learning now is that even these very minuscule doses of vitamin C are all the body needs to do the reactions around collagen synthesis. There's, there's a hydroxylation reaction in the collagen synthesis pathway that requires vitamin C. There are a few other reactions in the body that require vitamin C, but... I suspect that we only need a very small amount of vitamin C to do that, and more vitamin C than that doesn't seem to be helpful to people. We've never seen a benefit to vitamin C in interventional trials, and the, uh, the flip side appears to be true that when we put excess vitamin C, it can be a pro-oxidant. And so if, you re if you're eating animal foods in, that are fresh at all and not canned or dehydrated or preserved in salt for any amount of time, you'll get plenty of vitamin C for your body to function normally, so... Okay. No benefit to excess vitamin C. Okay. So just to be clear for the listeners, so if you're trying to help them formulate what you think is a healthful carnivore diet, nose to tail, high-quality protein, animal animal meat, yeah, but what does that include? So if they want to cover all their bases, so you want mm -hmm. organ meats, what else do you yeah. want? So I think that the way you should start your diet, or you, if you're thinking about a carnivore diet, I think that you need to focus on certain sources of fat-soluble nutrients and minerals that a lot of people don't focus on to start. So I would focus on egg yolks and liver, mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning, and making sure you're getting adequate fat, because I think a lot of people on carnivore diets do too much protein, and they don't think about the fat-protein macro. But you, then you can add in the muscle meats. So you want to get good quality fat from the animal, whether it's trimmings or actual suet, which is kidney fat or tallow. And then you can add that to steaks. But you want to start with the egg yolks and the liver. And that will be a pretty complete carnivore diet. You do want to think about collagen and making sure you're getting enough glycine to balance the methionine and the muscle meat. And then you also have to think about your calcium source, your omega-3 source, your iodine source. Most of that can be covered if you do something like salmon roe or some seafood every once in a while, but you want to do low mercury seafood. People are probably shaking their heads now saying this is all too complicated. And I think it, it, it just, it's intentional. It's not complicated. It's intentional. You know, it's, the hope is that by eliminating plant foods, you'll be eating the foods that are easiest for your body to digest that provide the most nutrients for humans. And the people who are particularly sick with autoimmunity may find relief from that. If people are kicking a lot of butt in their life, 
they can probably flex to some plant foods occasionally. I think plant foods are survival foods. And throughout our evolution of humans, we've probably eaten plant foods from time to time. I think we ate plant foods when we were not able to have access to animal foods. Mm -hmm. I think that if you look at indigenous cultures, they very rarely ate plant foods when animal foods were available because they sort of realized that animal foods were more nutritious and probably tasted better most of the time. So um, people can eat plant foods if they don't seem to bother them. But for people that really want to optimize or want to feel different or want to feel how it feels to eliminate all the plant foods, I think there's a great benefit to eliminating them completely and then trying to eat a nose-to-tail carnivore diet with all the nutrients. One of the things I did not mention about my transition into a carnivore diet about a year ago was that within the first three years of doing a, within the first three days of doing a carnivore diet, I noticed an improvement in my mood and my emotional stability. It was it was marked. I didn't really have depression. I think I was kind of frustrated and angry because residency is a pain in the ass and being an outlier in residency as a physician is difficult. But man, within the first three or four days of doing a carnivore diet, I was just so much more positive and happy to be alive. And I wasn't even doing ketosis at the time. I was doing carnivore with honey because I didn't want to go straight into ketosis when I experimented with it. So it wasn't the ketones. It was just, I think, and I've heard other people say the same thing, that their brains feel different when they remove plants. And a lot of the benefits of carnivore diets are seen by people from a psychiatric mental health standpoint, which is one of the things that I think is particularly compelling because there's a lot of difficulty treating depression and anxiety for people. So people have things that they want to improve. I think it's worth trialing um, you know, some amount of time without any of the plant foods. I had that same experience. Like the first few days I was – I remember like calling my friend and being like, I feel like I'm on drugs. Like I'm so happy all the time. Like there's something right. weird going on. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I had been in ketosis for like three years before that. So it wasn't like I just, you know, so that wasn't it either. But there was something about just being all all animal products. I don't know. Um, none of the plant toxins, you know, none of the plant, none of the plant anti-nutrients, whether it's lectins, whether it's plant anti-nutrients, whether it's plant defense chemicals, you know, whether it's oxalates, you don't get any of that. You don't get any negative stuff. I'm wondering if you know, like, what's your opinion on what if somebody was carnivore most of the time, like that's how they are, and then every once in a while throw in some plants. Does that like totally mess you up metabolically or? No, I don't think so. I think it just depends on how people are going to react to that. Again, it's going to be individual. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of people I work with who eat plants from time to time or they want to eat plants occasionally and they just keep an eye on how they're feeling and whatever it is, whatever the metric is that they're following whether it's mood or sleep or libido or energy or gym performance, they can kind of track that and say, you know what? I went out and I had some French fries with my friends and now I feel horrible. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, was it worth it? It's up to you. You know, it's all about quality of life for people. It's all about quality of life. And so for sometimes, you know, people, it's worth it to eat food with friends or to have a, a beer or, you know, drink alcohol. And that's, that's a higher quality of life than eating super clean 100% of the time. And that's fine. You can do that. I don't think it messes up things metabolically. I think people should just be aware of how their body's going to react. One thing that people notice is that the reactions sometimes get stronger. And I think that's a very interesting thing. And it can be very useful for people because they are able to separate signal from noise. They're just able to see how their body is responding in a much more clear way because they have eliminated most of the foods that were causing sort of low level reactions. And it's it's very clear how your body reacts to a food when you're doing an elimination diet or something like a carnivore diet. So they may have stronger reactions, but I would argue 
It's just that the reaction is much more clear and you're going to know. Yeah. Well, I'm not really talking about like having a beer or some fries. I'm talking about like having a bowl of cauliflower. (laughs) I mean, for most people, it's fine. I think cauliflower is going to cause people to have a lot of gas. I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, we can talk about cauliflower. I don't think there's any real benefit to having a bowl of cauliflower. (laughs) If you want to have a bowl of cauliflower, that's fine. I just don't think it's going to be like, I would say, okay, think about it. Like, why are you eating cauliflower? If you're eating it for entertainment, fine. Eat it for entertainment. If you're eating it for nutrients, I think you're going to be disappointed to learn there's really no you know, nutrients in cauliflower that you can't get in more bioavailable forms from animal products. If you're eating it for fiber, and I've talked about fiber on multiple other previous podcasts, I think fiber generally messes people's guts up more than it benefits people's guts, and there's no human need for fiber. That's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down. If they're eating it for phytonutrients, I would argue that the phytonutrients they've been told are good for them in in cauliflower, like glucosinolates, you know, glucoraphanin, are actually probably damaging them and inhibiting, you know, absorption of iodine at the level of the thyroid. So you got to remember, cauliflower doesn't want to get eaten either. Cauliflower isn't like, hey, eat me. Cauliflower exists because we've hybridized the flower of a mustard plant and made it into this big ornate structure, but that doesn't want to get eaten either. So that's that's not, you know, kale doesn't love you back and neither does cauliflower. But if people want to eat it for entertainment, that's fine. Just realize I'm eating this for entertainment. Okay, great. Don't don't be deluded or I want to disabuse people of the notion that they're eating it and it's benefiting them. I was talking more about entertainment, but I appreciate that rant. While we're talking about cruciferous vegetables, I would love for you to, I heard you say something interesting about um, sulforaphane on the podcast. And I have some friends in the nutrition field who are just like all about it. So I would love for you to um, explain your thoughts. Sulforaphane is the bane of my existence. So, (laughs) That's strong. So if we, I know. So fluorophane is a bad thing. It is a bad molecule. I want people to understand that sulforaphane is clearly a phytoalexin. Phytoalexins are plant defense molecules. These are molecules that plants make to discourage predation. The reason sulforaphane exists is because the mustard plant doesn't want to get eaten. Sulforaphane does not serve a role in the mustard plant other than a toxin. And so here's the story of sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is made from glucoraphanin when the enzyme myrosinase combines with glucoraphanin. That combination only occurs when the, sulfur- when the plant gets chewed. So the plant is saying, oh, I'm dead, or you're eating my leaf, fine. As my last dying breath, I'm gonna kick you in the butt with this molecule that's not good for you, it's poisonous because I'm going to take this enzyme myrosinase, I'm going to combine it with glucoraphanin, which is a storage form, and make sulforaphane. Now, sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. It's a very strong pro-oxidant in the human body. And I believe that it has been totally sold to us in the wrong, wrong way. And I'll tell people about why that is. But people need to realize that sulforaphane does not exist in a broccoli plant until you chew it. It would be so toxic to that plant that it would kill the plant because it's so much of a pro-oxidant. It only exists when that plant gets eaten. So the broccoli plant isn't saying, hey, I'm a magical plant. I'm going to help you guys live a long time. It's saying, hey, screw you. You're eating me. I hate you. I'm going to make this toxic molecule. And now everybody's saying, wait a minute. Rhonda Patrick says it's good for me. And this is the problem with so many of these plant molecules. These are multi-million dollar supplement industries. And there have been some studies which show benefit in some way. 
But, and we can see this repeatedly, you choose the molecule, curcumin, resveratrol, sulforaphane, whatever, the pattern is always the same. The supplement manufacturers, researchers want grants. They do a study which shows a benefit in one aspect of human physiology. And then there usually are other studies that never get widely talked about that show that that same molecule is damaging somewhere else in the human body. In the case of sulforaphane, it has been shown to decrease DNA damage. But the way that sulforaphane does that is not directly. Sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. Sulforaphane is a poison. The way that sulforaphane could decrease DNA damage is because it triggers the NRF2 pathway in the liver, which is a defense mechanism pathway. When sulforaphane triggers that, your body upregulates the enzymes that make glutathione. Glutathione is our endogenous antioxidant. Glutathione is our molecular policeman. And so glutathione gets upregulated, and you can show in a test tube where you can show in people that their DNA damage goes down a little bit because this, the glutathione goes up. Well, here's the thing. Number one, you don't need sulforaphane to make enough glutathione. You can make plenty of glutathione and protect your DNA by living a radical life. That is eating, eating, eating regular animal foods, exercising, heat, and cold stress. There's a fantastic article that I posted about on my Instagram which shows that cold water swimmers in Berlin had increased glutathione. In the short term, they have increased oxidative stress from the cold. They're jumping in like cold water and swimming because they're crazy in Berlin in the winter. But in the, short, in the long term, we make more glutathione. So this gets back to the idea of hormesis and the concept that there are molecular hormetics and environmental hormetics. Environmental hormetics are really the beneficial hormetics. These are things like cold stress, exercise, heat stress, etc. Molecular hormetics are what the supplement industry wants to sell us, and they're usually from plants. The problem is that these molecules always do something bad that we're not told about. But if you look at the studies, they're always there. And this is what I've seen time and time again with these molecules. The supplement industry just wants to show you what they do well and doesn't show you that in the body is doing other damaging things elsewhere, so it's clearly a net negative. In the case of sulforaphane, I illustrated that it does increase, increase glutathione. That's not a unique thing to sulforaphane. You can do that on your own. But nobody ever talks about the fact that sulforaphane also oxidizes membrane lipids. So sulforaphane circulates in the human body and creates compounds like 4-HNE and acrolein, which have been shown to be carcinogenic. Those create oxidative stress. And the other thing that sulforaphane is shown to do very clearly is to inhibit or compete with iodine at the level of the thyroid for absorption. So people who are doing all these green smoothies and having tons of sulforaphane with broccoli sprouts are not only creating more oxidative stress, they are damaging their thyroid in the sense that the thyroid cannot make enough thyroid hormone. If you look throughout the world, there are thousands of examples of people with endemic goiter. These women in Africa or men in Africa with these huge necks. That is thyroid hypertrophy because of iodine deficiency. The reason they get iodine deficient is because of goitrogens, substances just like sulforaphane in their diet that are goitrogenic. So these substances, I mean, sulforaphane itself has caused this in other countries. Like, it's very clear. Sulforaphane has also been associated with infertility, reproductive things, and in animal studies, it's been associated with increased rates of cancer. So this is not a magical molecule. It's not doing anything jack-in-the-beanstalk magical. It's not a unicorn fart, you know? It's just, it's not magical. It's doing something that your body can already do on its own if you live a radical life. And it's also doing bad things elsewhere in the body. We see the same thing for resveratrol. Resveratrol is, the, is just a worthless molecule. If you look at the human studies, they've generally, they've almost entirely failed to show benefit. Resveratrol is a substance in wine that was showed 
is shown in C. elegans worms, shown in yeast, and shown in mice to potentially have a longevity effect. But in humans, it's failed in fatty liver trials, failed in metabolic syndrome trials, failed in prostate cancer trials. And what else does resveratrol do that's bad? It decreases androgen precursors, so it decreases DHEA. And it also has been shown to potentially affect the immune system in a negative way by affecting T-helper 17 populations. So nobody ever talks about that. And resveratrol continues to be like a $20 million a year industry. Nobody ever talks about the fact that it's failed in human trials. It does probably turn on the sirtuin family of genes, which have been associated with longevity in humans. But guess what? We can do that with ketosis. You can do that with fasting. It's not a unique effect. And then elsewhere in the human body, it causes damage. So this is the pattern we see with plant molecules. They're the ones that are touted as molecular hormetics are clearly net negative because they do bad things elsewhere in the body that nobody tells us about. So these are all just fairy tales. These are just the Easter Bunny isn't real. None of these plant molecules are designed for humans. They're from a different operating system. Humans are like Mac. Plants are like PC or Windows. And clearly we know that those two don't play together. And so the molecules from the other operating system don't really play well in our biochemistry. Wow. Excellent. I really would love for you to chat with Max Lukavir. Have you chatted with him? No, I haven't, but I will soon. I'm hopefully going to connect with him soon. But yeah, you can connect us. I've got another friend in Los Angeles, David Nurse, who's supposed to connect us. Yeah, well, I would love to connect you um, if he doesn't. But yeah, okay. While while you're on the ranting train, can you talk a little bit about? Oh, I'm ranting. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm a good ranter. I'll you're, go. You're Find passionate. No, don't worry. This is what people are here for. Usually it's me doing that, so I appreciate it. Um, can you talk a little bit about mTOR? Sure. So if people, we're getting kind of geeky now. So mTOR you, is you already million. outed yourself as a geek, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm definitely a geek. There's no question that I'm a geek. Um, I posted something on my Instagram the other day because I love the Instagram account Nature is Metal, and it was I was like, look, I'm a nature geek. This is amazing. But I'm also a biochemistry geek and a nutrition geek. So. Wait, do you have a photographic memory? No. Oh, okay. Okay, Why? go on. I was just wondering. I mean, I, I think, I, I think you know, I've got a good memory. I don't think it's photographic. Um, so. <laughs> it's, it's the carnivore diet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. Carnivore makes you pretty superhuman. So I didn't, have a, I didn't have a photographic memory before carnivore, but maybe I do now. Okay. Um, I can okay. promise that. <laughs> Talk about mTOR. So mTOR is mammalian target of rapamycin. It's a, it's a tyrosine kinase uh, signaling molecule. It's a kinase. It's not a tyrosine. It's a kinase in, the, in a cascade that usually begins at the IGF-1 receptor or the insulin receptor. So mTOR is one of these intracellular molecular molecule, mo molecules that signals anabolic uh, states in human bodies. So it means building. So IGF-1 is insulin-like growth factor. One insulin is insulin. Both of those are anabolic type molecules. People get interested in mTOR because it's generally been suggested or there is this concern that overactivation of mTOR could cause excess cancer. And there are populations of people who have very low rates of cancer called Laron dwarves who have polymorphisms in mTOR. Now, this is a little bit of an overly simplified paradigm. I actually had a good conversation with Dr. Joseph Mercola. His, the podcast I did with him will be out this summer. But we talked a lot about this. And the reason this concern is unfounded is as follows. 
if you look at the signals to mTOR, they are essentially two, threefold. There is leucine, which is a branched chain amino acid. There is insulin, and there is exercise. Okay. Now, I don't want to paint mTOR as all bad. mTOR is clearly needed for humans to grow, to maintain muscle. I need mTOR, but I, I think that it's reasonable to say that we don't want to overstimulate mTOR, and we don't want mTOR on all the time. We want to have this delicate balance between on and off of mTOR. So the criticism of a carnivore diet is that overconsumption of protein, specifically protein which is going to have the branched chain amino acid leucine, will cause overactivation of mTOR. And the reason this is not totally contextually correct is that leucine triggers activation of mTOR in a much more transient and less robust way than insulin does. So if we're comparing these two, leucine is going to trigger mTOR for about 30 to 40 minutes in the experiments that have been done, and it's going to trigger it a little less intensely than, than insulin. Insulin, on the other hand, triggers mTOR for three to four hours and has a more robust effect on mTOR. So the real problem with mTOR overactivation is insulin, not protein, right? This gets into the idea of time-restricted eating and all of these things as well that we probably shouldn't be eating all day. But I would say pretty strongly that the main problem with mTOR activation and similarly with IGF-1 is insulin, not protein. And so what affects insulin? Well, it's carbohydrates. And people may say, wait, wait, protein triggers insulin. And I would say context is everything. Protein triggering insulin is much different when you're in a ketogenic state. When you're doing fat-based metabolism, the way in which you activate insulin is totally different with protein. And if we look at the insulin to glucagon ratio and we look at how much insulin is triggered, with protein in a ketogenic state, it's very low. There's almost, it's a very low level of insulin with protein on a ketogenic state. But if you're eating a mixed diet, if that means if you're eating carbs with protein, then yeah, you're going to trigger insulin for sure. And protein can trigger that. But if you're in ketosis, no, you won't trigger any insulin with protein. So people need to understand that context is everything. And that if you eat your steak with a bunch of potatoes, yeah, you're going to trigger insulin from a leucine perspective. Well, you're going to trigger mTOR from a leucine perspective. You're going to trigger mTOR from an insulin perspective. And that can be good or bad, depending how you looked at it. But most of the time when people want to talk about mTOR, it's the people who are worried about autophagy and they're worried about longevity and they don't want to overstimulate mTOR. The flip side of mTOR is AMP kinase or um, AMP kinase. And that is more of a catabolic thing. And that's generally what gets turned on in ketosis. So in my perspective... This idea that you're on a ketogenic diet with carnivore, but you get these protein boluses sounds pretty ideal to me, that you're going to get triggering of mTOR throughout the day when you eat meat, so you can get some muscle uh, anabolic stimulus, but you're not going to over-trigger mTOR. And so being in ketosis is a very good sort of, you, know, very, you can have a very precise switch on when you turn mTOR on and off. But people who are eating mixed diets with a lot of carbohydrates or more insulin are just going to be activating mTOR all the time. And we see the same thing with IGF-1. I was recently on Stephen Gundry's podcast as well because, as you know, like I'm just making the rounds and a lot of people, I want to talk to all kinds of cool people. And he was saying, what about IGF-1? What about that? And I said, well, here's the thing. Um, I don't worry about it because if you look at people on 
carnivore diets, their IGF-1 is very low. And that's probably because of ketosis and the fact that the whole thing is different in the setting of ketosis. So I think it's totally fascinating. IGF-1 does not um, go up on a ketogenic diet. And I think that's totally different. If you have a mixed diet, insulin and IGF-1 are going to kind of run parallel. And I'm realizing that I misspoke about the Laurent dwarves. Laurent dwarves have polymorphisms in IGF-1 um, because they have a mutated IGF-1 receptor. That is going to affect the way that they trigger mTOR. So people think like, oh, okay, if you have a mutated IGF-1 receptor, then you are going to have less mTOR. And because they have less cancer, people were thinking, oh, maybe this is an important thing. And I think it is. And um, the context is everything. So IGF-1 is often quite moderately uh, leveled on carnivore diets because it's a con the context is ketogenesis. Okay. God, I, yeah, I wish you had been on that panel at Paleo Effects that was like the great diet debate. Did you see that? It had Sean I'm, Baker and Gabrielle Lyon and like Joel Kahn. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be there next year. I'm talking to the organizer. Yeah, I think I'm going to be there next year. I'll be on that panel. Yeah, I wish you had been on that panel because it was like so PC. I was annoyed. But <laughs> yeah, Sean Baker said that he and Joel Kahn just played patty cake. And I was like, why? I don't know. I did a I did a podcast recently with Rich Roll. So I went on the Minimalist podcast, and that's gonna be out June eleventh. Okay. And Rich Roll Rich Roll came on and you know, I tried to I mean it was a friendly discussion, but we we disagreed on a few things. So I was able to sort of disagree with him and make counterpoints to that. Yeah. argument as well yeah but i think that yeah it doesn't really serve people when there's too much it's great that people are playing civil and they're being nice and saying don't eat processed foods but i think people want more information than that now and i think it's important to answer plant-based arguments and to contrast them with ways in which plant-based diets can be very dangerous and not beneficial to humans I agree. I was annoyed with that panel because it was basically just like they were all agreeing that people shouldn't eat processed foods. And I'm like, we're at Paleo FX. I think we all freaking know. Yeah, yeah. I think we already know that. Like, that's not why I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I was at Paleo FX. I was just hanging out, trolling. All right. Well, next year, I hope you're up there. Well, okay. The other thing I want to chat with you about, I mean, I know you're coming at this from like a nutrient density, like health perspective, but also in terms – I'm. I'm wondering about caloric needs and if those shift. Like, if, I feel like something weird metabolically happens when you shift to carnivore. Um, I've, like, read anecdotes about this. People saying they go from keto to zero carb and they can eat, like, twice as much calorically and nothing happens. Have you, like, looked into that at all? Yeah, I think it probably has to do with lectins, mm -hmm. or that would be one of my strong suspicions. So I did a, I just recorded a podcast with Paul Mason that's going to be out um, in a couple of weeks on my show. But one of the things that he and I talked about is that lectins, which are carbohydrate binding proteins, can do a couple of things which are damaging to the metabolism. They can bind to and trigger the insulin receptor. So lectins could trigger the insulin receptor. And we know that insulin is anabolic and insulin is going to cause storage of fat and is going to cause lipogenesis. So insulin is going to cause fat cells to get created because it's an anabolic hormone. And so lectins, which are carbohydrate-binding proteins generally found in nuts, seeds, grains, legumes, nightshade vegetables, but mostly in those areas in the plant kingdom, 
are going to trigger the insulin receptor in a negative way. The other thing, and probably contributes insulin resistance. And so one of the major things that happens is when people go from keto to carnivore, they're eliminating lectins. Because what do people on ketogenic diets eat a shitload of? Nuts, right? They're just, they're just crushing almond flour and you know they're not necessarily doing grains or beans, but they're doing, they could, but they're doing nuts and they're doing seeds and those have a lot of lectins, much to the dismay of the paleo, you know, people who love paleo. The other thing is that people on uh, ketogenic diets often do a lot of nightshades. They do eggplant, they do tomato, you know, unless they're on an autoimmune paleo ketogenic diet, they're not avoiding nightshades. So there's a lot of lectins there. The problem is the lectins can also trigger the le leptin uh, receptor in a negative way. So leptin is something that you want to be sensitive to. So they activate the insulin receptor and they block the leptin receptor. This is the L-E-P-T-I-N receptor. So lectins do two very dangerous things for us from a metabolic perspective. Leptin resistance causes obesity as well as insulin resistance. So lectins in the diet can cause insulin resistance and leptin resistance which is a really bad thing. And again, you just have to kind of wonder, why would we eat plant seeds again? Like, that's just not a good idea. It's really going to change our metabolism in a negative way. So I think that at least a good proportion of these changes that happen in people calorically, metabolically, when they eliminate plants from ketogenic diets may have to do with lectins. Interesting. Okay, I'm really, really need to, I really want to listen to your podcast with Mercola and Gundry now because I'm fascinated. Um, I'm wondering in terms of the fat to protein ratio, do you have recommendations for that? Like if someone's going into carnivore wanting to gain weight versus lose weight, would they adjust that? Yeah, I think you can adjust that. And there is debate about this. I don't think we fully know, you know, there's the Ted Naiman school of thought. And I think Ted is awesome. Um, he's another physician here in Seattle. Ted Naiman's school of thought is that if you want to lose fat, you should limit fat in your diet and do a higher protein diet. I'm not sure I completely agree with this for all people. It may be an individual thing. I generally think that most people feel better when they do higher fat and moderate protein carnivore diets. Now, what do I mean by that? When people are starting out carnivore, what I personally recommend is about a one-to-one -one ratio of protein to fat by grams, which will give you about a two to one ratio of fat to protein by calories, or even more than that, because fat is more than, um, fat is more than double protein on a caloric basis. You know, protein is probably between three and four grams per three and four calories per gram. And fat is about nine calories per gram. So I really think that people should play around with these macros and see where they feel best. But I think that about 70 to 75% of the calories probably should come from fat. And some people may do even better with more than that. Um, and people have done up to 80 or 90% of the calories from fat and they feel great and they're losing weight. If people are gaining weight on carnivore, I think at that point they need to have a, a workup with a physician to make sure there's not something else triggering insulin resistance. Because generally, people on carnivore should lose weight fairly easily, no matter what macros they do. And I, there is such thing as rabbit starvation, which is this really interesting biochemical condition where that is historically based in the idea that Arctic explorers could only get lean animals. 
they could only get squirrels and like lean small animals, which don't have much fat, and they died. So a high-protein, low-fat diet is starvation, and even Ted Naiman says that. So doing super high-protein without enough fat is a gateway to biochemical disaster in a human, and I think most people will do just fine with higher fat, and it's important to think about the source of that fat. I'm not a fan of dairy fat um, for a variety of reasons, casein, going to beta casomorphin, which is a lectin itself, and milk has lectins. Um, so I think that that can be a problem. So if people are eating animal fat, though, I think they will find themselves very satiated by the fat. And if they are eating animal fat and they are still not losing weight, there needs to be a workup because there's probably something going on with the metabolism that's not quite right. It needs to be adjusted. So generally, I would say one-to-one, even a little more fat than protein per gram per day. And then people say, well, okay, well, how many grams do I eat per day of each? And it's going to depend on how much, how big, how much they weigh. You know, my recommendation to people is generally think about one gram of protein per pound of lean body weight, or a little less than that. I mean, I can say one gram, but probably 0.8 is fine, which is a lot of protein. You know, um, I'm 170 pounds. I'm probably about seven or eight percent body fat. So, you know, if I were making the recommendations for me, it would be. 150-ish grams of protein per day, which is about a pound and a half of meat. When I first started carnivore, I was eating over three pounds of meat a day and playing with things, and my weight has pretty much stayed the same no matter what I do. It's very hard to gain weight eating protein, but um, I think people should start with about that amount of protein and then everything else should be fat. But protein is also very satiating, so people can kind of play around with those macros. Interesting. When you say it's very hard to gain weight eating protein, despite being in a caloric excess. It is. It's very hard. If you look at the protein overfeeding experiments, it's extremely hard to gain weight or protein overfeeding. Okay. You haven't met me. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to cravings for a second. So what if someone has been doing carnivore for like one or two months and they're just getting these really intense cravings like for things like salad or like blueberries do you think that's something they just need to keep pushing through or like what are, would that indicate are you asking for a friend yeah <laughs> not me <laughs> <laughs> I, um, but i experienced that too yeah yeah so I think that when people, when in the beginning, it's not uncommon to get some cravings on a carnivore diet. And this is part of the keto adaptation phase. So I think if people are getting cravings in the first three to four weeks, it's probably just keto adaptation if they're not keto adapted. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started doing carnivore, I was not keto adapted. I'd walk in the grocery store and I thought, I want to eat all that fruit. And then eventually it just abates completely. And I think that the more carb adjusted, the more carb you know, sort of dependent people are in their metabolism, the more glycolytic they are in their metabolism, the more people are going to crave carbohydrates in the first month. Cravings that occur beyond the first month, I would say probably are indicating a nutrient deficiency. Mm-hmm. And the body is tricky about this. You know, if you don't eat liver, you don't know to crave it. You know, if you don't eat something, you're not going to know to crave it. And so it's like, Ah, you might crave something and just think like, I want something. And I think it's a mineral or a vitamin deficiency. And in that case, you have to really look at your diet and say, what am I missing? You know, I think for a lot of people, 
you know, organ meats are the answer there or doing work with a functional medicine practitioner. I see patients, you know, virtually, um, like we know I'm moving to San Diego to open a practice there, but looking at nutrients, looking at minerals to make sure there's nothing missing. You know, commonly we talked about this electrolytes are an issue and whether it's a magnesium or potassium, those can cause cravings too. Some people get cravings for chocolate when they want magnesium or so they say, I don't know. But yeah, I think that if, if the cravings are beyond, you know, a month, you got to think about mineral deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, and look at the way someone's constructing their carnivore diet. Again, are they just doing meat and eggs? Well, you're probably missing a few things. Do you have molybdenum? Are you not getting enough manganese? Are you low in potassium? Yeah. Okay. But I think that it's an indication, and it's a good thing. You know, we should be grateful and say, oh, there's something going on here. I need something here. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think um, a lot of people turn to carnivore to help with their gut health, um, like bloating. A lot of people find yeah. that bloating goes away, which is awesome. Um, it's amazing. What about if someone's been on carnivore but they're still experiencing bloating? It's very unusual to still get bloating on carnivore. At that point, you need a gut test to see if there's something else in there. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be H. pylori. It could be SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Although people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth generally do very well with the elimination of fiber. So if they're still getting bloating, there's something living in the gut until proven otherwise that is causing problems. Could be an ulcer, could be H. pylori, you know, something is going on there that's not playing nice. Yeah, touching on SIBO for a second, but like, what if someone has hydrogen sulfide SIBO that can feed off that? You know, I was actually just reading some stuff about hydrogen sulfide SIBO. I, I am not convinced. So in hydrogen sulfide SIBO, generally the thinking is that there are two organisms, biophilia wadsworthia and uh, the desulfovibrio des des organism. And I don't believe this is an issue. I don't really think that avoiding sulfur-rich foods is the answer because, look, like we know that we need hydrogen sulfide in the gut, and hydrogen sulfide is one of these things that's kind of tonic. It, small amounts are very good for the gut, and we need it. We don't want to eliminate those organisms completely. I am not convinced that this hydrogen sulfide SIBO is really the entity that we think it is. I think that if someone has hydrogen sulfide SIBO, we need to think about molybdenum deficiency and whether they're just having sulfur sensitivity because their SUOX enzyme is not working well. I am not convinced because if you look at the literature or what people are saying now on podcasts about hydrogen sulfide SIBO, they're also saying that FODMAP diets don't work well. And it's like, wait a minute, like what? It's not even like, what is going on here? Why do they have overgrowth of sulfur bacteria in the gut? I think that the microbiome is quite complex and I think that we misunderstand it quite a bit. I'm not convinced that um, these sulfur producing bacteria are the answer and that eliminating sulfur from the diet is the answer for these bacteria in the gut in any way, shape or form. I mean, people want to use herbs and they want to use other things to get rid of these bacteria, but we know that we need them in some ways. So I think that the whole paradigm is kind of mixed up and I disagree with the way it's being treated. So if somebody has been told they have hydrogen sulfide SIBO, first of all, the diagnosis is pretty hard because breath testing only tests hydrogen and methane. I mean, so it's almost a diagnosis of exclusion. And I would start with molybdenum. Yeah, I mean. I know a few people who were have been in the trials with Pimentel. For the hydrogen sulfide SIBO? Yeah, so they've been getting the tests. You know, it's like, okay, but I still think that it's like not fully understood. And this is like, I don't think that avoiding animal products is the answer here. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. 
Um, what about, have there been any studies showing what happened to the gut microbiome, like carnivore versus with plants? Have there been any actual studies on that? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit. There's one that was done a number of years ago. It was at Harvard, and I think they were trying to show negative changes in the gut. And it's just so hard to know what happens. I mean, I've often asked for people to send me their ubiome and other results uh, through social media. And from what I've seen, you know, populations of bacteria shift. And one of the criticisms people have of a carnivore diet is that you're not going to make as much butyrate, which is generally false. And people misunderstand the mechanisms by which we make short-chain fatty acids, and they misunderstand this idea that there is – I mean, you can make short-chain fatty acids out of proteins as well as carbohydrates. You don't need need carbohydrates to make short-chain fatty acids, and the epithelial cells in the gut are going to get fuel. They're going to get short-chain fatty acids. There might be slightly different short-chain fatty acids. It might be isobutyrate rather than butyric acid, but – the colonic epitheliocytes, the epithelial cells in the small intestine don't really care whether it's butyrate or isobutyrate, propionate or acetate. They're going to use all those short-chain fatty acids in the same way in their metabolism. And if you're in ketosis, those cells are going to get ketones directly through blood supply to do their metabolism. So it's not a problem. But generally what you see is that when you go carnivore, um, you will get a shift in bacteria toward bacteria that are protein-loving. You know, They will metabolize protein more than carbohydrates big surprise. And I think that people like to jump to conclusions and say that they, um, that that's a bad thing. And I don't think we know that at all because generally what we're seeing with carnivore is that people are having resolution and marked improvement in inflammatory bowel disease rather than de novo inflammatory bowel disease. I've never heard of anybody getting Crohn's from doing a carnivore diet, which is what you would think would happen if, if people were so worried about, you know, these, these changes in the gut and, you know, these organisms arising, then they, I mean, follow it to its logical, logical conclusion, then you're going to get a ton of gut inflammation and you should get inflammatory bowel disease. And generally people improve radically in terms of gut stuff with no evidence of inflammation, decreasing calmodulin, you know, leaky gut is very hard to measure, but a lot of times you can show at least the group in Hungary has shown with PEG 400 testing that there's total normalization of hyperpermeability on, you know, high fat ketogenic paleolithic diets, which is essentially the same as a carnivore diet. That's their wording for a carnivore diet. So we don't see people's guts going haywire. There are changes, and it's changes to bacteria that will metabolize animal foods. And I don't think that we know that that's good or bad. It's certainly not bad clinically in my experience. I think people want to jump to the conclusion because, again, we're just sort of steeped in this dogma that we need a variety of plant foods to, um, to have a healthy gut, and that just doesn't seem to be true at all. So there's one study that showed they actually did the shittiest carnivore diet ever. They had like all these processed meats and they compared like a plant-based diet to the processed meat diet. And what you see is that the processed meat diet still makes short-chain fatty acids. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do you have all of your patients go carnivore? No, I mean, I'm going to meet people wherever they are. I think people a lot of times find me through carnivore channels because – like you said, I'm kind of a carnivore guy now, and mm-hmm. I'm actually, you know, going to be rebranding my website, and I'm going to, you know, I bought the domain like Carnivore MD, and so it's all going to be carnivore because I'm so excited about it. But I definitely have patients that eat vegetables occasionally, and some patients that feel fine on vegetables. Almost everyone I work with has tried a carnivore diet at some point, and they've said, "Well, I don't really feel any different when I eat vegetables or not." So I'm okay; it's fine. But 
you know, for people that have autoimmune issues, I usually recommend they trial it strongly. But no, I don't think you will have to do a carnivore diet. Um, if somebody came to me and they were like, I'm a vegan, I'd say, well, I mean, why, don't you, why don't you try a carnivore diet? I mean, I just want to help people, right? Like, yeah. I really, although I'm super excited about a carnivore diet, I'm not dogmatic about it. And I'm not trying to force on anyone. I'll offer as an option. I think it's really powerful, but I'm not going to force anyone to do it. So what's it been like on social media for you since um, making this shift? Like, are you getting a lot of death threats from the vegans or what's going on? No, I think they see my abs and they just don't even know what to think. They can't even deal with it. They're like, oh, man. And they, I think they see me and they're like, that guy, look, I'm just, I'm kidding now. They see me and the guy is like, oh, that guy is so healthy. We can't even criticize him, you know. I'm out there just loving life and being happy. I don't get a lot of death threats from vegans. Every once in a while, some silly vegan wants to argue with me. I got my buddy sent me a post. There was some vegan, or not even a vegan. Uh, somebody did a post of, about the carnivore diet and listed me a bunch of times. It kind of misquoted me and stuff. So I invited her on my podcast. I don't think she's going to respond. I invited her on my podcast, but it hasn't happened yet. But I mean, I'll tell you what. Like, I think the worst thing that could happen to me is a vegan would throw a vegetable at me, and you know, if they threw a squash, it might hurt. But I mean, have you seen vegans? Like, I my heart goes out to them. Like. Dr. Gregor could not hurt me, like, for his life, man. <laughs> he would, like, break his arm. Like, he's got – they couldn't hurt you. Like, vegans yeah. are just, like, little fluffy teddy bears. I just want them to be healthy. I know. I, not when I when I did Carnivore and I was posting about it on social media, I got um, quite a few threats. And this one, this one girl goes after me, and she's like – you're eating that meat, but you wouldn't actually kill that animal. She's like, you would never actually kill the animal. And so I recorded a whole podcast responding to this girl's Instagram comment. I'm like, yeah, I would fucking kill the animal. Like, <laughs> if I had to. Do you kill all your own food? I wish. I have a friend in Austin who kills all his own food. Uh, I'd love to be able to. That's a goal for the future, you know? I would love to be able to kill my own food. I mean, I think... So I wanted to get back into bow hunting, and it's a little hard in the city because... You can't shoot the bow in the city, which is fine. They don't want to like, they don't want you like shooting like dogs accidentally, yeah. Yeah. kids or something. Heaven forbid. So it's hard to shoot the bow, but um, yeah, I'd like to. I think I'm going to get back into bow hunting this year, and I think that people who eat meat should experience what it's like to kill an animal. In my experience, I did hunt one season when I was in Flagstaff. It's an incredibly spiritual experience. It wasn't like I wasn't out there just like listening to country music and throwing beer cans on the ground and just, you know, disrespecting animals. It was more like, it just made me think about Native American ideas and how, in a way, like you have to be a considerate and intentional, a mindful human to kill an animal with a bow. Mm -hmm. A rifle lets you do whatever you want because you can kill an animal at 800 yards. But if everyone bow hunted for their food, man, that is hard. It requires patience. It requires mindfulness it requires respect and when you know when i did kill an animal it was a really beautiful animal and the first thing i thought was man i have a real responsibility to live well because that is a sacrifice oh that that it's season you know we know that in order for something to live something else must die whether that's a slug or a deer or a cow or a plant like it, it has to happen and so we shouldn't I don't think that we should see the taking of life as a as a uh, as a uh, cruel thing. I think we should see it as a sacred thing, and we're all going to die eventually. I mean, when I'm out there surfing, 
I see it as a circle of life. You know, if a shark decides to come up and munch on me, I'm like, hey, that's that's all right. There it is. Like, I'm food too. Mm-hmm. I agree, 100. Um, percent We're getting to the end, and I do have two things that I really want to ask you. Might be out of left field for you. I don't know if you ever asked this before, but you know, with all this carnivore talk, do you worry at all, or have you been accused of triggering eating disorders? Hasn't happened yet. I think that some people with eating disorders are a little sensitive, you know, to food limitation. And I think that just has to go back to these sort of candid conversations about why people are doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be a restrictive thing. It's meant to be something that allows people to heal from inflammatory immune illness. So I think if people have, you know, eating disorders, any sort of elimination diet is going to trigger them, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think it's very challenging to people people who have eating disorders um, and autoimmune disease because they probably need to do elimination diets, but they have difficulty with that. And I think that the first thing to do is to do, you know, therapy around where that's coming from and understand that elimination of foods is not, you know, not meant to be restriction. It's meant to be freeing. So nobody's ever, nobody's ever accused me of that. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to limit someone. I just, the ultimate goal for me is to help people achieve better quality of life. However that happens and mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a carnivore diet, you know? Yeah, no, I, th- I think there's such a fine line in this space. It gets, especially with this intuitive eating thing. Um, people are very sensitive to it. And I mean, I see people who, you know, they, they follow a bulletproof diet and it totally fucks with their head and, I see someone follow SCD or low FODMAP, and it's really hard because these can be really life-changing healing diets for people, Um, and then for others, it can trigger disordered thoughts and cause more anxiety and stress, Um, and then you have the intuitive eating side of things. I don't know if you see that at all on Instagram, who shame anyone who eats healthy. (laughs) Silly, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting... It's an, I think everybody needs to be responsible, like, you know, because there's always going to be information out there about your health. And if you, you know, like, there's a difference between fearing food and understanding if it's going to help you or not, you know? Yeah, we're not limiting food because of body image. We're limiting food because we want to get to an ideal state of health. Yeah. Yeah. Well... One other thing is I'm curious how this affects your social life. Have, have you noticed it affecting your social life at all? You know, a little bit, but then you kind of find a carnivore tribe. or you. I think in a, it's, a, it's a good thing in your social life. It kind of, you know, if, if people don't want to hang out with me, I have not been a big drinker for years and years and years. So I haven't been a big drinker for the last, I've never been a big drinker. So if it's ever been an issue for me that like people don't want to hang out with me because I don't drink, I'm like, cool, we just see the world differently in the first place. Um around food, I've always been sort of strict about food too. I mean, even when I'm organic paleo, my friends get it and they're just like, Hey, that's just how he does it. And so for me, it's just a great litmus test. If, if people that are quote unquote friends are put off or inconvenienced by the fact that I'm intentional and discerning about my food, I really have to question, you know, the value of that friendship. And it just doesn't seem to happen a lot for me. And, you know, generally people are like, Oh, that's cool what you're doing. And you know, if anybody questioned it, I would say, you know, like what's, what's the problem there? So it doesn't bother me. Um, 
sometimes it's a little bit strange with like dating and stuff. And I think that if people are dating, they could see that happen and that could be a challenging thing. But again, it's just like, to me, it's just a, uh, it's just a, a, a good selective thing, you know, whether it's dating relationship or like a friendship, I want to be hanging out with people that are open-minded and are willing to consider new things. And if somebody's completely put off and it's just like, you know, whether it's a platonic or romantic relationship, somebody says, Oh, I want to, you have to eat gluten. Or I really feel like uh, our relationship is better. If you eat pizza, it's like, well, sorry, <laughs> I don't think this is going to work. Yeah. Well, definitely with that, that extreme, but like, what if somebody isn't just isn't carnivore? Like what if they're really healthy, like paleo? I mean, where, where do you go on a date if you only eat, like, where are you going to get liver? Uh, good question. I think that if I were going to go on a date with someone, I would just go somewhere that had like good quality steaks. I mean, generally the kind of places I look for now are places with grass fed steaks. I do prefer grass fed meat for a lot of reasons, but, um, I think that, uh, I think it's better to have the grass fed stuff. And so if I can go somewhere with a grass fed steak, I'm going to be fine. I don't have to get liver at every meal. Mm -hmm. So how do you prevent this from being your identity like okay let's use the dating example so when you sit down you're ordering like obviously this would come up you know what I mean like but you're not your diet no but I think that it's a big but but I mean my passion and my career and like a significant portion of who I am is human health mm-hmm. and so it's a real conversation mm-hmm. you know it's a real conversation and I think that if someone is just it's generally I mean I think that it's probably going to be one of the first conversations we have because it's such a big deal. It's like if you're on a date with somebody and they're in the circus, you're going to be like, wow, like tell me about the trapeze, you know, or like they're what if they're like somebody that swallows swords or plays with lions? You're going to be like, holy shit, like you're a lion tamer. You know, that's amazing. Don't you want to know about that? That's a big part of their life. You know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, how'd you get that scar? Oh, the lion bit me. You know, it's the same thing. It's like it's a huge part of my life. It's something I'm really passionate about, and it's going to be one of the conversations, but it's not the only thing. I mean, that's kind of also on me to be interesting enough beyond diet and carnivore and be like, oh, do you like art or movies or books or like literature? Or mm-hmm. What are the creative things that people like beyond that or surfing? I mean, but, you know. So, but don't, do you worry that, so do, but do you want them to be carnivore? No, no. I don't judge people, and I don't, I've never been, you know, a proselytizer I mean I've dated women throughout my life when I was paleo and you know if they were eating donuts and pizza I was like okay this probably isn't gonna work but um you know they don't have to be paleo they don't have to be carnivore I think usually they're curious and they try it but like it's not not an not an imperative like I said I think some people tolerate plants better than others I think humans are facultative carnivores Mm -hmm. I think humans can eat plants from time to time and they uh they can eat plants from time to time and that can be fine for some people i think some people tolerate it better than others and so i just want someone to be healthy i think that ideally whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship relationship i just want someone to think about it because it's such a big part of my life yeah so do you know where you can get a good grass-fed steak in seattle um, there's a couple of places. They're pretty expensive, but you can find them. I mean, yeah. And this kind of argues like, I don't know, this is a whole separate conversation, but like, I've never understood. I guess people like to go to restaurants because it's like neutral ground in the beginning or it's fun, but I've never really understood the appeal of going out to get a steak at a restaurant. I mean, if you have a grill or you have a, a cast iron skillet, you can make a steak 95% as well as a restaurant. 
and it's like 25% as expensive. So maybe that's just like the pragmatic minimalist side of me coming out, but it's like, why not just cook it yourself? You can get really good meat or something. But yeah, I mean, if you go to steakhouses, you can spend an astronomical amount of money on a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So funny story. When I was at my, my sister's wedding, she recently got married and we were all at this big family dinner. And of course, I'm the one who orders the big steak. <laughs> I'm the only one. Um, and so my meal costs like three times the amount of everyone else's. And everyone in the extended family is looking at me. Um, and I was just eating it. But yeah, I don't know. It is more expensive. I think that you'll find the one when your first date is hunting your dinner together. Right. Exactly. I mean, that would be that would be a good that would be a good first date. I'll put a Craigslist for, ad out for you. <laughs> <laughs> a Craigslist? You're gonna make a Craigslist ad for me? Will Will looking for a woman who will hunt on first date? <laughs> I think that you'd find that. I don't know if you'd find that a whole lot in San Diego. Um, we'll see. But uh, you could find it. I mean, you could definitely find it. I don't know if you'd hunt. You'd find it in Seattle, but I mean, it's out there for sure. There's a lot of girls who like to hunt. Hmm. We'll see. All right. Well, thanks for sharing all of your knowledge. You're a wealth of knowledge. I'm very impressed. Even though you don't have a photographic memory, I appreciate it. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you tell everyone where they can find more information from you? So I've got a podcast. It is Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD. It's on all the platforms. And I talk about and just, just I talk about training. I talk about diet. I talk about lectins. I talk about all kinds of stuff. The idea is the podcast is my search for optimal health. I have a website, which is Paul Saladino, MD. Dot com, and people can um, sign up for my newsletter there. I have a fundamental health newsletter, which I put out every week with stuff that I think is cool. And then I am on Instagram at Paul Saladino MD. I'm on Twitter at MD Saladino. I'm on Facebook at Paul Saladino MD. I've got a YouTube channel, Paul Saladino MD, and people can find my email on the website if they want to work with me privately as clients. And if yeah, if people want to go surfing, they can send me a DM on Instagram. Okay, awesome. Thank you again. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Dr. Paul Saladino for coming on the podcast and sharing all of his knowledge. I'm sure that blew your mind. He has so much information in his head. I don't know how he keeps it all in there. He is just a wealth of knowledge. So if you want to find more from him, you can go to paulsaladinomd.com. You can look him up on Instagram at paulsaladinomd. Check out his podcast, Fundamental Health. Shoot him a DM, like he said, if you want to surf with him in San Diego. If you enjoyed this show, make sure you share it on social media. Tag me, tag Dr. Paul Saladino. Just tag everyone. We love to see that you enjoyed the show and i would so appreciate it if you left a rating interview on itunes it only takes a second it's free to you and helps me spread the word about the podcast also i have newly reinstated the podcast instagram wellness realness podcast you can search that on instagram i am back in action on there 
so make sure you give that page a follow as well. Don't forget to email me if you're interested in getting on the waitlist for the Pillow Women Lifestyle Program. This is the last time I'm running this group coaching program ever. And enrollment is July 15th, and I want you in this group. So you can go to bit.ly slash Pillow Women Lifestyle if you want to learn more. All right, that's all I have for you this time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have an amazing rest of your day, and I will chat with you again later this week. Bye.